0: This is the Aftermarket Radio Network.
1: Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and we have a very special guest, somebody I've been very excited to try to get on the show since the first time I met him last March at uh, the Vision Conference. His name is Eric Dallas, and he's a young technician and instructor for something called Changing Gears in Cincinnati, Ohio. So I get it. His last name's Dallas. He's from Cincinnati. It's really confusing, but welcome to the show, Eric.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited about being on the show. And yeah, we met last year. So it's, it was definitely on me to follow up with you to, so we can get this going sooner. But yeah, it's an honor. I can't wait to talk about uh, my life and what it's like to be a black technician in the automotive industry, especially one that has been an ASE master for some time now. So yeah, I'd like to dive in and kind of share my story, my viewpoints, my experience.
1: Awesome. Well, before we get rolling too much here, let me quick thank our sponsor, Napa Auto Care. Accomplish more by starting now. That's the motto of Repair Shop of Tomorrow, a Napa Auto Care exclusively endorsed vendor. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percent, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute, no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing that bought Parts store. All right. So first things first, Eric went with Scott Schotten and I and actually Scott Manna and Leo Gilmore to the all-day hands-on Picoscope class at uh, Vision over at Johnson County Community College. The acronym over there is like J-C-C-C-C-C-C-C-C-C-C. I don't know why he was there, but we just made him teach the class and we got to go hang out in the corner and talk about (laughs) music and movies and how good a job Eric was doing and how he was making us all feel very obsolete. (laughs) But it was a great time, the ride over and Scott's pickup truck and then also um, watching you work. And just interacting with everyone, you bugged a couple of cars so that they could try to find the issue with the scope. Yeah, it was an absolute blast. Want to thank you, and then uh, make sure you're going to be there this year because we need we need you again.
0: Yeah, it was a great time. That was not on my schedule, but just through the connection with Scott, that was a really cool invitation, and it turned out to be better than expected. So, and I do plan on being at Vision this year. I'm just uh, fingers crossed, hoping and praying that I get. The scholarship that way, I can block off that time from work for sure, and uh, come hang out with you guys, learn some more, and uh, advance my skill set. Uh, but mainly, the networking—that's amazing.
1: Well, I mean, you got to meet Leo Gilmore, and you know, kind of met Scott Shoten already, and yeah, Scott Manna, I mean, that's you're hitting in the the big leagues. Yep.
0: Yeah, I met Ziegler, John Thornton. Like, uh, I mean, I'd watch a lot of his free classes uh, through AES Wave. Getting to meet him was pretty cool, too.
1: Yeah, he's a pretty good guy.
0: He's smart. He knows his stuff. Ultimately, it was a better experience than I could ever imagine. I was very thankful to be there. And we'll see how what 2023 has in store for us.
1: Can't wait. It's coming quick. Yeah. I mean, 2023 is already here, but I guess I was talking about vision.
0: Right. Vision 2023, I should say. Yeah.
1: How in the world did you get into this racket? I mean, seriously.
0: It started out when I was younger. Like,
1: okay, just so everyone knows, Eric's like 18.
0: Yeah, 18. 35. Yeah, I guess I look 18. I'm gonna take that and run with it. But, um, (laughs) it's better
1: than me. Most people think I act 15.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I got into just taking things apart with my hands at an early age. My father had like RCs and stuff that he would work on when I was younger but I would do stuff just to see what was inside. How did it work? What did it look like beyond the casing?
1: So like RC planes or RC trucks, cars?
0: Vehicles. Um, He had like a six-wheel drive monster truck. That was pretty cool. I remember. I think he had like a miniature version of uh, Bigfoot and uh, Gravedigger.
1: So it was pretty cool. They ran on nitro?
0: (laughs) They did. Yes. I remember being loud and and smoky, but Uh, And that's kind of what I'm going to get into later on is the exposure. So I would take things apart and uh, maybe I wasn't able to put everything back together.
1: Stuff's overrated.
0: Right. You know, exactly. You know, so my mom had a VCR and I'm like, well, if if you put the tape in there and there's a video that shows up on the screen, what if I put one of my army men in there? What if I put, is it going to show up on the screen? The logic was there, but it didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) So then I go, all right, well. I can't get the tape to go in any longer. And I see the Army, he's wedged in there. I can't get him out. So got to take the case off. Again, I was younger. I didn't know that you had to unplug the device before. I was just going to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) So a little buzz here and there. 110 didn't hurt me, didn't kill me. I realized the importance of safety uh, on that end. But yeah, it was pretty cool. I didn't get it back together and it never worked again. But I got to see how it worked when you would, you know, hit the eject button and you hit play and all of that. And that was pretty cool.
1: I just want to say that we'll probably, you and I, after the show, are going to have to talk a little bit about high voltage batteries and hybrids (laughs) or EVs. Right.
0: I got exposed early.
1: I'm looking out for you, man.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. But, uh, Yeah. I fast forward to when I got older, my mom would take her vehicle to our local shop. I don't want to drop any names because they are still in operation. It just seemed like she just kept having to get the vehicle repaired over and over again for the same stuff. I'm like, you just had your brakes done six months ago. What's going on? And there's got to be a reason. And so anyways, I started taking things apart and I was just like, she bought me a Haynes manual. And I mean, the original one that, I mean, it was pretty in depth and she had a, a 93 Dodge Caravan. By the way, I love those. But she had a 93 with the wood grain on the side.
1: The V6, three liter Mitsubishi.
0: Yes. So you know them well. Okay, good.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately, I know them quite well.
0: So I just dove in and started doing her breaks, started off small, simple repairs, and then it grew into, like, oh man, this is awesome. I really enjoy this. Now it's, I want to seek formal training. She said, you know, you got to have a plan when you're 18 because you need to start a career. You need to, uh, you know, be in school or something. But, uh, you know, it was a sink or swim kind of thing. You're not going to be here. So it was a little scary, whatever. I end up going to UNOH and doing some research. It was either UTI or UNOH and Lima, Ohio. So I end up going up to Lima, Ohio because it was, I think, about an hour and a half, two hours away. It was pretty cool. I think a really good investment. I was up there for two and a half, three uh, Two and a half to three years. I got my associates in automotive, and then I did the alternate fuels program that they had. That was pretty cool because we had different projects to do, like converting a vehicle from gas to LPG or CNG, the hybrid technology stuff with the Toyotas, biodiesel. We made a batch of biodiesel and we made a batch of ethanol. It was great that exposure there, seeing all of those things. That was a white dominated school at the time. I don't know what it is like now, but it was mostly white. I think I saw maybe a handful of other races there, but it was still a great time for me. In my experience, there's most of the uh, people, white people that were there were pretty cool to like indifferent, like they didn't really care. And then there was like this really small percentage that would try me anyways. And they would say things that was you know a little careless or you know just trying to get a reaction. But the response was overall positive. And the people that were indifferent or either that or in, you know, just like, hey, treating me like another person. They didn't tolerate that behavior from that small faction of people that behave that way. So it wasn't too big of a deal. And it wasn't like my first rodeo with stuff like that. So I wasn't going to react in the way that they wanted. I mean, I tell my children this all the time. You can't control people treat you or talk to you or behave, but you can control how you react to it. And being in control, I mean, I think the ultimate way to get back at them because they're not giving them the reaction that they want.
1: Where you grew up when you were a lot younger, was that like predominantly black or was it mixed or was it?
0: It was predominantly black. Maybe, I mean, at my school, maybe one or two people were white or another race, but it was, if I had to give you a percentage,
1: maybe 95% black. And then the college was a lot more mixed up.
0: It was like the invert, uh, an inverted version of what I had. So, I mean, it was mostly white, but it didn't bother me. It was definitely different. I mean, I saw a lot of trucks, a lot of, uh, you know, (laughs) a lot of guys were dipping. I learned about dip spit and all that stuff. It's something else. Yeah, it was different up there uh, for sure. I graduated. I came down to try to find a job. But when I graduated, that's when everything went downhill. It's 2009. You know, there was a recession, dealerships were closing because I wanted to work at Ford. Found out they were closing dealerships left and right. And I'm like, oh, man, I made a mistake. You know, I invested in this education only to find out that, you know, the industry is crumbling.
1: So you worked on your mom's caravan so much. You were sick of dodges. You were not going to go to the crazy dealer. <laughs> Was Ford nearby? Was there a reason?
0: Ford was pretty prominent. They had multiple dealerships within our area. I think there was like one Chrysler dealership, Moser Dodge and Chrysler on Ridge, but they shut down. But uh, yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, I even had to take a job at like AutoZone because employment was a problem. So as things build back up, I uh, eventually got on at the Ford dealership. That was awesome. This was a dealership in Kentucky. So I was the only black person there as well. And again, it was just the same thing in school. There's most of the people who don't care. It's not a big deal. And then there's that 1% or half a percent or whatever that they want to create a problem. They want to get a reaction. I didn't make it a big deal because it, was, it didn't mean anything to me. I mean, you know, these people that were doing it, they really didn't have any stake in my life anyway. So I'm not going to give them the energy.
1: Were these coworkers or were they clients?
0: Yeah, they were coworkers, and then also classmates. I didn't have any issues with that at UNOH when it came to the staff or anything like that, but it was just, it's uh, my equals. It was what it was. I wasn't going to change their minds by giving them a reaction they were expecting. I think that was powerful in itself. So that went well. I uh, pursued my career in the automotive industry further where I wanted to be master certified. And that's when I had heard about, I'd heard about changing gears. So fast forward, I've been working at changing gears for nine years and it's been the best job I've ever had. I get to teach. I get to work on vehicles and use my gifts to bless other people, especially our goal is to break the generational poverty. And by providing transportation that's affordable and reliable, that helps do that because they have a vehicle now that they can get to work. They can get to the grocery store. They can get to doctor's appointments. They can help their neighbors. And that's just been so rewarding that it's just amazing. And it doesn't matter what color I am here. A lot of my clients or a lot of our clients are black, just like me. Not that that matters. We also have white clients, but we're not focused on that. At this point, we have a goal to alleviate generational poverty. And so we get to do that and I get to take my training and help others with that. And a lot of these clients you know, I see them around town. I see them in my neighborhood. I see them at the school. So it's really cool to be able to connect with them on multiple layers, multiple levels. Yeah. Enough about that. The overall theme talking about being a black technician, it's interesting because a lot of my influence, a lot of my drive, the examples I was given that came from my mother. So I draw a lot of my strength from her. She, she grew up in poverty. She was one of five children. She grew up poor in Springfield, Ohio, and her parents had died at an early age. So she's the one that taught me that education, knowledge weighs nothing. It weighs nothing. Consume it. You know, No matter what you lose, no matter what someone takes away from you, they can't take away what you know. And she went from being this poor black woman in Springfield, Ohio, to educating herself, going to UC, our local college, graduating and becoming a pharmacist. So she's a black female pharmacist. She has been in school longer than I have been alive. She's amazing. I was confused. I was just like, oh, man, she's such a nerd. I can't be that way.
1: She's going to listen to this. Oh, (laughs) I see what you're doing.
0: All right. So, yeah, (laughs) got to set the stage.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The after Valentine's Day, a little late, mom, but
0: oops. But yeah, she's just been my the driving force, just seeing her. And then uh, I mentioned I graduated in, in 2009. She and I graduated in the same week. And what I mean by that is she got her doctorate in pharmacy in 2009. We went to her graduation first and I got to see my mom walk out and receive her doctorate screaming and yelling. And it was just amazing. And then a week later, she got to come to my graduation, see me graduate. And, you know, that wasn't by accident. Like that was amazing. Yeah, that was a blessing there because that's a memory I can never forget. And just us both standing together with our cap and gown.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's overly important, but would you say you grew up, maybe not even in poverty, would you say you're lower class, middle class, upper middle class? Was she a pharmacist by that time when you were a kid?
0: Yeah, she was a pharmacist. I couldn't say when she, she began to be a pharmacist. I believe it was before I was born. Okay. Yeah, I will say middle class. So it was something that she had done. I, recognizing her sacrifices, the things that she did, where she came from was important because that kept me grounded because I can see how easy it would be to, you know, not know the origins and then just assume that this is life and this is the way it should be. But I know that that's not the case because, like I said, she made it clear like you, when you're 18, you're going to be out of the house. You have to have to have a plan. I'm not supporting you. You're a grown man at this point. And I'm glad that she did that. You know, it was a sink or swim kind of thing. And I'm glad she did that because how do you know how strong you are, how capable you are if you're not put to the test? And she did that throughout my childhood. I thought that was powerful. And she's been a heavy influence on me, which is kind of weird, though, because she's really uh, delicate with the grandchildren. So I'm like, that's not the person I knew. Like when they're describing things, how they got to go and buy all these things and and get spoiled. I'm like, no, that didn't exist.
1: I swear to God, that happens to everybody because... I couldn't imagine my parents having it rough with my grandparents, their parents, as parents. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Well, you, that grandpa, that was not my dad. Right. That didn't exist. Yeah. And then I had to explain to my kids, like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) That ultra patient guy you know as grandpa. Yes. That wasn't my dad. (laughs) No, no.
0: But yeah, so. That's my background. That's the lens that I'm viewing the world through. Like, there's, you know, experiences and all of that that kind of help paint that. But she's the one that taught me to be humble. There's more value in helping people than helping yourself. She's a very generous person to the point where I've seen her be so generous when I know we didn't have it. She's still helping people. And that is something that I get to do here. I get to do what she did because she knew everybody. She was a pharmacist, so she knew everybody. And I couldn't get away with anything at all because they would tell on me. So, or my (laughs) sisters or my brother. So yeah, there's no getting away, period. Like she knew about whatever we did before we got home and she was heavily involved in my school, not only because they were pharmacy customers, but she volunteered at the school. And some of the people that were on staff at the school were also my neighbors. So that was really cool. That heavy involvement, that influence is what shaped me today. Even though my father was not in my life, I know it was hard for her, but she still was able to pull it off. And I'm glad that she was firm with me and hard on me when she needed to be. That kind of directs us into what I wanted to talk about um, a little further with the black technicians and what's going on there. The biggest first thing that came to mind, I should say, was exposure. Early exposure is key. I'm a firm believer in that. If I didn't have that early exposure, I don't know that I would be in the position that I am today. I think with being a parent, I mean, you're the primary source of influence to your child. You got to be the first to market because otherwise you got competing things that are going to, if you don't teach your child the right way, the world's going to teach them. They're going to learn it anyway. So you better be the first
1: to market to them. Hey guys, Matt here talking to you about what the Napa Auto Care Center program can do for your business. You probably already know the Napa brand is the most recognized and trusted name in the automotive aftermarket industry. In fact, Studies show nearly 95% of customers recognize NAPA and associate it with quality parts, service, and technical expertise. So why not complete a Pro Image upgrade and take advantage of that? Pro Image is a co-branding program for the exterior and interior of your shop. On the outside, it includes the NAPA colors and distinctive NAPA signage. While the public may know you as a reliable, locally owned business, a Pro Image upgrade helps set your shop apart from the competition even further. It is also a visual signal to your customers and potential customers that you and NAPA are partners. Most importantly, ProImage really works. This co-branding opportunity has helped NAPA Auto Care Centers across the country increase their car counts and sales. In fact, those that have completed the ProImage project enjoy an average of 23% sales increase during their first year. ProImage upgrades are also available for the interior of your shop. A Pro Image Interior Upgrade transforms your customer waiting area from merely utilitarian to warm and welcoming. The goal is to maintain your shop's independent identity while enhancing the customer's experience. You can get a free look at what a Pro Image exterior or interior upgrade can look like by visiting the Napa AutoCare member site and clicking on the Napa Pro Image link under the Napa Pro Image tab, or contact your local Napa Auto Parts store. Your servicing Napa store can tell you more about Pro Image plus the hundreds of other reasons to become part of the Napa Auto Care family, the largest network of independent auto repair shops in the country. I think where worlds are starting to collide with this is too many years ago that they would ask kids what do you want to be when you grow up. And this is something that Killer Mike has this really, really good Netflix series, docuseries, if you will, called Triggered with Killer Mike. It's must-see. I know I say that a lot on here, you know, idiocracy is must see and ex maxia is must see. And well, this is must see too. And, um, it's asking kids like, what do they want to be when they grow up? And it's a little while ago. And I think Charles Barkley would talk about this quite a bit too, uh, amongst other people, many other people would say this, they'd ask kids, what do you want to be? And primarily white kids would say doctors, lawyers, even construction plumber, you know, And then they would ask black kids, and I'm not saying all of them by any means, but a lot of them would be, I want to be a professional athlete, I want to be an entertainer, something of that nature. But where I want to go with this is now that seems to be changing to where kids are overwhelmingly, not overwhelmingly, but a lot of more, a lot more kids are responding with, I want to be an influencer, right? And that's across the board. I want to be an influencer. So I guess where I was going with that is when you're a kid, and I think we already know the answer is going to be your your mom, but... Was it working on her car, helping your mom out because you felt like this shop was probably taking advantage of her, whether it was because she had the money to spend on the car or because she is a woman or a combination or just maybe it wasn't even had to do with that. Just she didn't know much about cars. So was that where you start going down that road or, you know, was that just something in the house? Like you said, you're gonna have to have a plan, kid. When you turn 18, you're going to be on your own. So the chances of being... In one of those fringe type things, whatever that may be, isn't so reasonable to you? It was definitely
0: almost like a call to action where I saw the amount of money I was helping her save by not paying the local shop and doing the work myself and learning. And there was a um, passion or a drive that was born out of that. Like, all right, this was awesome. And I can understand that like, it just comes to me very easily at this point. Like I fully understand this. I also get to help her out to where it's not such a burden on her. And so from there, I'm like, I can get training to be more advanced and do this for other people. Who else can I help with that? Because honest repairs are out there. Like There are shops that do honest work and they also ask for an honest wage. And I believe that that's fair, but All it takes is a few to ruin it for all of us, and so that was the driving force. Is I liked helping people. I saw my mom do it on a regular basis, and I think that that is something that drove me. Is I get to help people, and this is something. This is a gift that I have. Why wouldn't I use it for good?
1: When when you brought it up to her that you're kind of thinking about this as a career, how does she respond? And really, this is not a loaded question. This is. I don't think this has squat to do with ethnicity. 100% to do with auto techs, auto mechanics have a really bad reputation and it doesn't seem like a very prestigious type career. Not that your mom would think you'd have to be of something prestige, but it probably isn't one of the first things that first things that would come to her mind As yeah, I I could see Eric doing that. He'd be really good at that. He could make a a really good living. How did she respond to you saying like, "I, I think I want to pursue this as a career?
0: Initially, it was she listened to what I had to say and she said. You need to research. You need to know the market. You need to know what you're getting into before you dive in because it may look like a nice pool, but you don't go diving in. It ends up being shallow. And now, you know, you've hurt yourself, you know. And that was the analogy that she had given. And so, knowing, you know, what was going on and what the potential was, this is not an industry that's been glorified in the black community. I kind of skip ahead to that because you kind of hit on a lot of what I was uh, wanting to talk about with the killer mic thing. And that is, The culture. How is the automotive industry glorified in both white and black cultures? In this example, in black culture, you have uh, an example would be in rap music. You know, rap music is very different from country music in the sense that rap music, from my viewpoint, rap music promotes being a consumer. You know, you got to buy the big rims, you got to buy the stereo system, the the sound system, you got to buy the remote start, you got to have the Candy paint. You have to, you know, in order to have value or be someone. So it's just promoting you buying these things. Whereas, like country music, you know, you hear.
1: But let's just make something very clear: country music is like an oxymoron. Okay. (laughs) It can't have the two. And sorry. Wait. Do you like country music? No. No. I mean. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. We can't have (laughs) country music. It's like an oxymoron. (laughs) I mean, I don't know EDM. I don't know what what you listen to. I listen to both kinds of music, Eric. Heavy and metal.
0: Okay, okay. So, but like backing up in this example, uh, you know, you hear country music. They're talking about old trucks, tractors broken down and broken hearts and and stuff like that, where, you know, there may be a song about how this, you know, I got to fix this tractor. I got to fix my truck in order to get the girl, whatever it is, is the uh, example. I don't know what country music now is. I heard that there's a country rap kind of thing going. Don't know anything about it. Don't want to know.
1: I'm sure you'll be bringing that with the vision so we can (laughs) listen to it together. I
0: I don't want it. But like, when's the last time you heard a song about you know, a tractor with big realms, a sound system and a remote start, like in a candy paint, you, you've not heard that. And so uh, my point is you kind of hear and see this glorification of fixing something that you have or the vehicle or, or whatever and saving it rather than going out and buying and buying and buying these unnecessary things. So I think where the influence has gone wrong is, yeah, those things are nice, but what they could show is the work behind that how they got the TVs installed, like who did the TV installations, how that worked, the training behind that, knowing how the rims will clear the vehicle or how to modify the suspension so that the rims will clear the vehicle. Installing a radio. I mean, you do stuff like this wrong, you put people's lives at at stake. They don't demonstrate how the aftermarket work looks. You just see the end product.
1: That's a really good point you're making because there's a lot of shows. I'm going to pick on one. Of course, it's relating to the rap slash hip hop culture is even in the name and then the host exhibit the uh pimp my ride you bring up a really good point because they could have spent more of the show watching these craftsmen because you had like the mechanic guy the engine transmission whatever fixing that part of the car the brakes and then you had these guys and women i mean and hopefully you can accept that a lot of times when i say these guys it's really just these people these professionals that what they're doing, the, the artwork and the paint, the bodywork you know, whoever's doing the interior with the seats, wrapping the seats and whatever, if it's a, a leather or something, the uh, installation of the TV screens and audio equipment and whatnot, you know, and literally pimping it out. They could have spent a little bit more time with those professionals and just artists and showing what it took to do that and how much they knew, how much they needed to know and then how good they were at it. And hey, man, how did you uh, get so good at getting these lines so straight on the seat covers? And, you know, hey, you, the the lady running the audio for the speakers, like, how'd you get so good at running the cable where you'll never see it? And just a, a minute or two to say like, oh yeah, the first few I did were awful, <laughs> you know? You're so right. And there's other shows, like, I don't know if you've ever seen like Russ Brothers Garage. They're Canadians and they're fixing up cars and selling them. Uh, and he's got just a, boatload of these rusted out rusting vehicles in his field but they don't spend nearly as much time as they could watching the craftsmanship to do what they're doing it's mind-boggling i think you bring up a really good point with that that nobody's glorifying what it took to get that
0: right you're just seeing the result of it and furthermore you're not seeing the glorification of like technicians you know, like you said, people are saying, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever and those are high income jobs. Whereas I'd never heard about, you know, yeah, I heard people say, oh, I want to be a, me- a mechanic. I want to be a technician growing up. It was, I want to be, and to hit on what we were talking about earlier, like how culture influences this industry uh, or the choice to get in the industry is important. And I think the automotive industry needs to do better at marketing to the youth. I mean, other industries have gotten gotten on the train here. They understand, like with IT and coding, you see that in schools. You see that starting in an early age. With sports, sports is a really good one. That's a universal. How many children are in sports with the hope that, you know, they learn values that, you know, working in a team, working on a team, how to work together for a common goal. But then, you know, maybe that they can turn it into a career in the future, but it starts early planting that seed at an early age, that exposure at an early age helps cultivate and create something possibly in the future. I mean, you got that with gaming YouTubers. I mean, they fully understand you got to start young. I don't want to say anything about the automotive industry bad, but if they are understanding it, then we have to understand it and figure out how we can market, how can we get to the youth and expose them to this, especially with the technician shortage. And so I've got a couple of ways. I mean, I thought that one of the things that I was able to do being here at Changing Gears was I was able to volunteer at my children's school. I would volunteer on Fridays and then work a full day Saturday. And that allowed me to be involved in my children's school. But I also started an after school program that was called Mechanical Club. And the whole purpose was get the children exposed to working with their hands. Using tools, taking things apart. So we would take apart old lawnmowers. We would take the engines apart and make a mess. But, you know, hey, this is what's going on. Here are some components. What are they? Uh, let's identify them. How do they work? We built a pedal cart. We even built a uh, an arcade, you know, to kind of tie in some of that coding. So we got a um, Raspberry Pi. It was a Raspberry Pi. It's a pocket computer that, you know, we coded and we created, we, you know, we downloaded games onto it and created a retro arcade. We built that. That exposure alone is valuable. And I think that schools should have more programs like that. They should be exposing the children. I mean, think of it this way children know how to to use a cell phone, they know how to game, they know how to work a PlayStation and Xbox, like, you know, they were born with it attached to them. But why can't we expose them to other things? You know, why not? that's really helpful. And so there was one young lady, her parents actually she was one of my helpers in in um mechanical club, because uh, her younger brother was actually participating, but she would help out and oversee things because we had a I say we, my wife and I had 61 children total. And this is from ages 1st grade to 6th. And the young lady said to her mother that she wanted to be a uh, a marine, a mechanic in the marines. And I thought that was so random, but she ran into my wife and she told my wife, hey, tell your husband that our daughter wants to be a Marine in the uh, a mechanic in the Marines, a technician in the Marines. And she asked her daughter why. And she said, because a mechanical club. So that exposure, like it's proof and on a small scale that it's working. So I think that that's crucial. What I'm not seeing, though, in the schools is the hands on learning. I'm not seeing welding. I'm not seeing auto tech. I'm not seeing any of those programs that were once in the school. And so my question is, where have they gone? And then follow-up is, why? Why did they leave? I don't know if there was HVAC or anything in, in schools, but those are questions I think parents need to ask. I know I was upset because I wish that these programs were in my high school, just so I had an early start.
1: See, I went through high school. I had, there was an automotive program, an elective, but we all had to take intro to metals which was really just an introduction to kind of everything. So a little bit of, not so much automotive, but a little bit of small engines. We'd have to know what the parts were and kind of what they did. And then some metal work, bending uh, sheet metal and to make little lanterns and run a lathe, drill press, stuff like that. A little bit of um, acetylene welding and then an introduction to wire feed. And then if you felt like that was something you were interested in, then there was you know, welding class or metalworking class or uh, automotive, which automotive is rough. Automotive class, because, you know, your class time is only about 45 minutes. It's rough to get much done. So it'd be nice for them to switch to more of a block learning in certain parts of the day or certain days of the week. So that automotive class could be pushing a couple hours. You could actually do something, get a car in, get it hoisted, pull a wheel, maybe pull a caliper off, something like that. Like you could legitimately do it and take your time. But like you said, I think a lot of that stuff's just hemorrhaging away along with some of the arts type classes with music uh, is going bye-bye.
0: Music class, arts. Yeah.
1: I can't answer what they're being replaced with. I wish I knew.
0: For me, it seems like there's a priority for standardized testing and, and whatnot. And it's just, yeah, what is taking the place? And and whatever is taking the place, it, it better be leaps and bounds better than what it replaced. Otherwise, you're downgrading education.
1: If it's standardized, though, what do you think the chances of that are that it's going to be better?
0: I mean, being a uh, product of standardized testing, it sucks because it puts you in a box, a category where it's like, uh, so an example, we had the Ohio proficiency test and it was five parts and it would test you on five different subjects and then you had to take this you know, this test. And when you took the test, either you passed all five or you, you know, the goal was to pass all five. I think four out of my class passed, including myself, all five sections. And everyone else you know, that didn't, you know, it kind of kills self-esteem. But then it also puts a target on those four or five or whoever puts the pressure in on their backs. And the thing is, is, I don't really care for standardized testing just because you fail a standardized test doesn't mean that you're not smart or intellectual. It just means you have different ways of attaining knowledge and then also showing, improving that knowledge. And that's why I like that the ASC does, you know, you've got the written part, but you also have to show a working experience. And I've learned, you know, you can read whatever you want in a book and, and learn everything in the classroom. But until you get into the real world, experience experience can't be found in a book. There's no... You can't find it in chapter 10. Like you have, that's the best teacher. You've got to learn. I think that that's where my hangup is, is we put a lot of energy into testing, 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 but not everybody learns and can prove that they know the knowledge that way. I know a lot of the students that I even studied with knew the knowledge. They just weren't good test takers, or maybe they would read the question too fast, but they knew the knowledge. So I don't think standardized testing is, is everything. Standardized testing is a part of it, but- I think bringing some of those programs back, making those a priority, stop trying to put everybody in a box and then go from there, see what happens. I mean, I've done it on a small scale and seen great results with that. So I can only imagine what would happen if we scaled it up. And then the automotive industry, I don't know if that looks like, if that means having technicians come into the schools to describe, or maybe the school visits a shop, I don't know, you know, but something or after-school programs, um, like what we started with mechanical club. But also providing an alternate route for possible careers, because if they feel like, oh, this is the only pool I have to draw from, then it may not be appealing. I hated high school, but I loved college. I think it was because of the testing, but also like the social aspect. Like in college, your grades, your academics, that's how you were ranked. High school, you were ranked by if you could afford these clothes or these shoes, or if your parent was this person or that person. It wasn't, it didn't make any sense. It, you know, they, say, they talk about high school politics. That's exactly what it was. But in college, no, that didn't exist. Or if it did, I didn't see it. I think having an alternate path for those that don't want to go down the, the route that is prescribed for them, planting the seed early. And then the biggest part is removing the stigmas. There is this stigma that, you know, mechanics are greasy, dirty. They're working in this hole in the wall that's dark and dimly lit. They don't make any money and there's, you know, they're thieves and all of that. I think the early exposure and showing them, hey, nope, that's not true. I think that helps remove a lot of stigma where you can see for yourselves what the automotive industry looks like. How can you picture yourself or if you can picture yourself in the automotive industry? And it doesn't need to be, you know, just technician. It could be you can be collision. So, and then just looking at overall statistics, I saw a major drop in technicians. I think it was in 2018 is when it dropped. And then it's slowly climbing back up as of 2022. But I think that's a way that we can kind of help bridge the gap coupled with like the apprentice program. I think that that's fantastic because that takes away a lot of the weight. I've seen a lot of guys when I was in school drop out in college, I should say drop out Because they were like, well, the debt is too overwhelming. I got to buy all these tools. And there's a lot of upfront investment. It's very front loaded. I don't know if I want to do this. The problem is whether you went to college or you just started at at a dealership, you have to go into debt initially. The NAPA program is awesome because it helps relieve some of that burden because it's so front loaded. So I'm not sure how we would address that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a cultural thing in our profession though. So many other skilled trades, skilled professions—they've had decades and decades of a system of apprenticeship, journeyman, master, what you know, whatever names they may use outside of that or within that. Auto repair not really done that. You don't really show up at a shop with either a diploma or a degree or just an interest, and they may say, "Well, like, oh, we'll, we'll make you an apprentice," but there's not necessarily a program in place. That even somebody that has it written down somewhere in the back, like, okay, for the first few months, he or she is going to be doing this and working their way through the shop to become a whatever name you would want to call that, you know, a journeyman uh, or a line tech or what whatever name we want to give that B tech, C tech, something of that nature. I don't think we've ever really done that. It's certainly not part of our, I, the only word that really pops into my head is culture. There's auto repair shop culture is not such a way it's basically throw somebody on the lube rack and they may be there for a couple of years. And then when they're about ready to quit, but they've done that a pretty good job there, then you're kind of like, Oh, well we better move them off of that. And then probably throw them into the pool of line tech, whatever level work you're going to give them. There's no path showing a young person. Yeah. And they don't even have to be young nowadays. Like we're so starving for talent that we'll take, Somebody as old as you, (laughs) but it isn't necessarily someone so young anymore. It's somebody that's interested, but we won't give them like this path. We won't show them that in one year, two years, five years, you know, you're going to start here, but this is where you'll end up. This is the path to get to here. And then hopefully, like you're saying, to change some of the stigma is the other techs who are at that spot and above Become your best marketing team because they're kind of like it. Hey, stick with it. Eric, stick with it, man. I know you're getting your butt kicked on some of these whatevers, but you'll figure it out. You know, next time come get me. I'll show you what to do and stick with it. Cause man, once you get up here, man, they take really good care of you. They, you know, look at this. The wife and I get to do this or the husband and I, we own this or the employees are the best marketing team for the shop for other, um, you know, talent recruitment. But we really don't think that way. I don't know that we've ever thought that way. So there's a lot to learn. And I think bringing up like that NAPA program, at least it's something to be followed. You know, if you don't know what to do, you can kind of get this program and there it is. Right. I agree. I got to believe as a young person, if you see that, you can start thinking about the future and planning in the future. And that's super important.
0: If we can expose it for what it is, but. I said, plant that seed and then glorify it in the ways that, you know, like YouTubers and, and influencers and gamers and all of that have reached the youth. I think that that's going to help with the automotive industry for sure. And I mean, we do that here with the tech training program where we take, you know, anywhere from one to four people at a time. And then we train them up with the intention of them being fully employed before at graduation to be a lube tech and being able to properly rack a vehicle, change the oil check the oil, the fluids, do inspections, TPMS, and as well as flat repairs. We teach all of that. And then when they leave our program to kind of alleviate some of that tool burden, we provide them with a couple hundred bucks worth of tools, especially the stuff that they're going to need immediately. And that way they don't have to spend any money. They don't have to get on the tool truck. We teach them about the tool truck and staying out of debt as much as you can, because ultimately you need to keep as much money in your pocket, especially starting out. Because I've seen it when I started, you know, it's real nice to get on that truck and and picture things and everything's so shiny and, you know,
1: snap on or Mac 20 bucks a week, Eric.
0: Yeah. For the rest of your life, you know, that's
1: all yours. 20 bucks a week.
0: It's just like, oh, okay. That sounds great. Yeah. I can get you financed with no money down. Well, the problem with that is you don't see what you're ultimately paying over time. And so we want them to get in the industry with as little debt as possible so that that's one less thing they have to worry about. Because they already have to support themselves and their family and whomever. And so we get techs, you know, they come through our program from all walks of life. I don't know if I can say her name, but she's a black tech. She came in, she wanted to be a Ford tech. She said, I am dead set on that. And she came through our program. And she graduated. She ended up working at our local Ford dealership. Not only did she get the job, but within two months, she had already gotten a promotion. Wow, nice. And it was pretty cool because it wasn't like, oh, lube tech to, you know, a flat raider or something like that. She ended up getting a job where she's being trained in management, where she can navigate both worlds. So they're going to train her a few days a week in the management, but also she's a lube tech on the other days. And Just seeing that and then another one of our techs in the same class, he just killed it. We love to see how hungry he is. I mean, he comes in and he's knocking out work. And the problem is like the other techs are like, you know, slow down, take a smoke break, make a phone call. You're doing too much and he won't slow down. And so management sees that. And so he ended up getting elevated. And so there is definitely money to be made here. And there's, you have the drive and our ultimate goal is to set you up for success. We want to remove as many roadblocks as we can and soften the blow so that you can hit the ground running and establish yourself. And I think if the automotive industry wants to bridge that gap, then let's do it. Let's find solutions. And I think the NAPA program, I don't know if any other program is doing what NAPA is doing.
1: Offhand, I can't name one.
0: I couldn't either. I mean, I know that there's like technical schools, like our local school, which they have, I think, some high school programs specifically at their campus. And then they have adult classes at night. but you're not seeing that in high schools you're not seeing that in middle schools and so that's something that I'm curious about like what do we do how do we bridge the gap um so we're trying to do our part with feeding technicians into the automotive industry and educating like this is the life that you can look forward to if this is something you want to do we'll move forward but being transparent I think is key because then you have a lot less people getting into it, dropping out, finding out it's not what they wanted or expected and then giving a bad name saying, Oh, well, you know, they're just, I think that's getting the right people in the right spots, but being completely open with, you know, what to expect. I can't cut the pace. I can't do it because of physical needs or or whatever. So, but that's where I am. I believe exposure at an early age is where we start. Um, I think revamping and addressing the culture If the intention is to get more black technicians in, then we've got to model what other industries have done already. And that is go after the youth, make it clear who we are, what we're doing and so forth. And maybe find a way to glamorize
1: it. I don't know. Well, I think it's like we've been dancing around a little bit is at some point it has to be a a viable career. Yeah. That helps you pay the bills and live. I don't know too many auto techs. Actually, I take that back. I don't know too awful many people that really need or want much more than just kind of a a decent middle class, somewhere in and above and below that type of life. They want to be able to afford a decent house, a couple of decent vehicles, you know, save up money to do fun stuff, you know, have vacation time and then enough money to be able to have a fun vacation. Now, granted, right, when we're talking about this stuff, you can't ignore that spending habits play a role like you already talked about. Stay out. The tool truck sometimes can be its own detriment, uh, or at least the tool truck itself isn't inherently evil. It's just our behavior on it. Yeah. The choices we make. So, right, spending habits, of course, play a role. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you do have to get X amount of dollars per you know month, year, whatnot, versus the cost of living. To be able to do these things, if we can start providing that where it's now right in line, if not arguably slightly above the other skilled trades, which is going to be difficult, that will be difficult simply because I think we have a really, I know I mentioned it, I could be a bit of a broken record sometimes. I think we run into certain ceiling issues with the value of, if we take and look at other skilled trades, like an electrician or a plumber, they're working on your house. Well, your house is going to be worth probably three, four, five times more than your vehicle, and it doesn't depreciate. Right. But, you know, the automobile auto technicians, their skill sets are so much more varied generally than most electricians, most plumbers, most construction workers, stuff like that. That we have to know HVAC, we have to know fluid dynamics or fluid power hydraulics. We have to know just basic. Engine operation, both mechanical and then emission systems on top of it, and electricity, electronics. And it just builds and builds that we have a very wide knowledge base. And yet, typically, we're compensated less than welders, electricians, plumbers. So it'd be nice to at least get in line with them. And I think the argument could be made based on skill set slightly above. That might be more difficult, but at least the logic behind it. And that's what we got to do. I, I don't know about you, but I would say maybe in the last three to five years, that seems to be changing. Like it's the auto techs wages compensation packages are starting to go up, up, up. Because as a repair shop, you can't keep losing people to these other shops. Although I don't think that happens quite as much as the techs leave to go do something else and make quite a bit more money to do it using a fraction of the skills that they needed to work in the shop.
0: I think you're on to something there. I think that in order for it to be appealing, I mean, what are those things that I listed have in common, whether it be coding in IT, sports, gamer, YouTube, what do they have in common? They have high return on your investment. You know, you get you're gonna make good money. Uh, I'd say better than good money. I think that's offering more money to get started, to stay in the field.
1: It's more money, and then the work environment's quite a bit different too, because it's a lot easier for them to offer flex time. You know, If you're working on coding a video game, where you go to work, if you even have to go to work, you maybe work out of your house, but let's just assume that you do have to go to work and you have a cubicle. They probably don't care when you come in. They probably have... Set goals like we need this done, we need this done, we need this done. If you can go in there and bang it out in a 14-hour shift and be done for the week, they don't care. And then I know a lot of other um, people in that type of profession, whether it's IT, coding, game development, stuff like that. There's a lot of times they show up to work on like a Friday and they go in and the the manager or the owner or whoever they're working under is like, hey, hey, we're going to have a meeting, come on come over here and we're not working today. There's a bus outside. We're going to a game. We're going to a go-kart park. We're going to a splat ball field. So there's a lot of these team building type exercises or just fun days that one, is not part of our culture. Two, it's harder to execute, right? The nature of the beast is a little harder to execute something like that. Not impossible. I don't want to say it's impossible at all, But we don't think that way. It's not part of our culture. We don't think that way. And we don't set ourselves up to make the type of money to be able to say, like, go over to the service advisors and say, hey, shh, shh, what Friday's open? Keep it open. Quiet. Right. (laughs) Right. And then everybody shows up on that Friday and it's like, hey, we're not working today. It's, we're going to, you know, a ball game or some of you guys said that you want to go to. You like bowling or, you know, whatever. We're going to go out and we're going to have fun as a, a team or a crew. Yeah. And that's what we're competing against.
0: The money and then the convenience or the other, I'd say, features, you know, perks.
1: Perks or fringe benefits or...
0: That can be challenging because people want their car fixed. You know, they, they want their car fixed. They don't want to wait an additional day for you to go out and do a team building exercise. They want it done now. So how do you do that? And does that mean, well, if you can't offer it, do you offer more money instead or?
1: Well, and a lot of our shops are structured that to make money for them, the shops to really make money in. And thus everybody else is production, 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 production. And I get it. Like it's, you got to produce and that's the way it is. But the way it becomes very profitable is, so dependent on production instead of rates you know what i mean and where i'm going with that is to be able to have the cash flow coming in to have the amount of money available to put away store away so that you can do these just you know off the wall stuff whether it's a friday off or you know take high area you know around here maybe around you too really you know hire a um, fishing guide and take everyone out fishing you know, something just off the wall, I don't know, and not yeah. shop-related. And, oh, by the way, we're not talking about the shop right now. Yep. And we don't think that way. And we don't set our businesses up in a way to be able to do that stuff. The only way it works is the only way we kill it is pounding out you know however many hours a day. And we have to produce. Work has to get out the door. But we could work our rates up eventually to where... It's a combination of the two. And now we can have this excess cash, excess money to start doing these things that we wouldn't normally do. Something that you and I talked about a little bit on the phone one time is what you do changing gears and it's offering such those services to underprivileged or people that had a bad time or poverty, something of that nature that the shop itself, if it's profitable, can do the same, maybe on a a limited, more limited scale than what you do but still be able to help somebody out, be able to fix up a car really good and give it to a family that needs a transportation. If you have the money to do it, you got to have the money to do this stuff. Yeah. I think that's the way we got to start thinking. And again, I think that's a way to other than glorify the only other word phrase that's coming to mind is put over the profession to put over our trade, to put over being an auto mechanic an auto tech is to do something like that. Like, Oh, Hey, changing gears, picked up this car. Uh, Wherever it was abandoned, and it needed new windshield and new tires and brakes and exhaust and a tune-up and maybe a, a paint job. And now it's they gave it away to a family in need that now the mom or whoever can get to work every day and drop the kids off at school. And that people see that. And if you keep doing that over and over, not just your shop but other shops and stuff like that, that people see that, and then it's like, oh wow, it's another positive thing. And maybe that isn't what's going to put somebody over the edge to be like, I want to be an auto mechanic when I grow up. But it's one more positive thing. One more positive thing. And now you go over to your friend's house and their mom or dad's an auto mechanic and they have a decent house and do fun stuff.
0: You see the fruits of their labor and you see, oh, okay, well, I think I might want to do that.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Or that looks pretty cool because what they did, you never know how it's going to affect someone, but they may see, oh, that shop gave away this view and help this family. I want to be a part of that, you know, and storytelling is the best way to reach people. That's the biggest way to influence them. When they see, you tell a story, but then they also see the result. They can see the physical result. You know, I could talk about our clients all day. I love the fact that, you know, we celebrate, we celebrate when they get the keys to their car. We celebrate small things that, it might be small to the average person, but it's huge for them. And just seeing their upward mobility is incredible. Throughout the years, that never gets old. Has uh, never gotten old. Man, I tell everyone, you couldn't pay me to leave here. I mean, yeah, the money would be you know, great. We're a small faith-based nonprofit, so we can only do so much. And with that being said, you couldn't offer me enough money to leave here because I believe in what we do so much, and it's rewarding. And my wife and I understand that I could go somewhere else. We all could, but we're here for a purpose. And I would rather be here than one of those guys that are making – major money and
1: miserable. That's a hundred percent. And it speaks directly to me because again, I'm not trying to put myself over, but it speaks directly because the last two episodes I released are on luck and success and just quote unquote success. And I think what you just said there really resonates with me. Like, yeah, you could have all these big dollars coming in and be just miserable. And is that successful? Yeah. Or like you just, so into what you're doing, so happy doing what you're doing, like that might be the ultimate success right there.
0: Yeah. The success is, means something different to everybody, you know? And I mean, some people might be happy with big dollars and all of that, and, but everyone's different, you know? And I think you just got to find what works for you and your family overall. So this is essentially our family.
1: I really appreciate you coming on. And I mean, I'm going to ask right out of the gate, Will you come back on? Absolutely. I mean, we've got <laughs> tomorrow. Hey, <No>. right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you got the time, you just tell me when.
1: I'll make time for you, sir.
0: That'll be great. I'm hoping fingers crossed. As soon as I know whether or not I'm coming to Vision, I'll let you guys know. Between you, Ziegler, Scott, and Leo, it's gonna be awesome.
1: Leo is he's a Subaru tech. He could. We could just ask him to cover you. Yeah, yeah. You'll be good to go.
0: That'll work. Just come on down here.
1: Well, definitely let us know as soon as possible, because if we got to, we'll figure something out. Okay. We'll get you there. I mean, you might have to take a train. Okay. I don't care. <laughs> Maybe a wagon and have to listen to country. Country. Ah, That's where I draw the line. I like you too much. So I ain't going
0: to do that. That's funny. But uh, yeah, we will definitely do
1: another episode ASAP. We got to do an ASAP on ASC.
0: That is something I definitely want to talk about. So, all right. Well, thank you for having me on.
1: Oh, dude, thanks for being on.
0: Well, thanks, man. I'll talk to you later.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Eric for joining me once again. I'm really looking forward to our follow-up. Thank you to Napa Auto Care for sponsoring and making this all possible. And then, of course, thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network, especially Carm and then a little bit Tracy. Until next time, everyone, take care.
0: You've been listening to Matt Fonslow, diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect. Or on
1: aftermarketradionetwork.com.